This episode is brought to you by IVP. Though many today have given up on the church, God has not. In his book, Becoming the Church, Bishop Claude Alexander shows how the apostles and early Christians were formed by God into his church. By tracing these New Testament experiences, Bishop Claude shows that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we too can be transformed by Jesus and join in God's mission as the church. And as a listener of this podcast, you can receive Becoming the Church for 25% off when you use the promo code IVPOD25, that's IVPOD25, at IVPress.com. This is IVP. God has a design for us to live both with the beauty of difference, but the difficulty of difference, the sanctifying, humbling aspects of learning to love someone who is not like you. And when it works and we see it, we celebrate it. It's beautiful. We walk away and say, only Jesus could do something like this, pull these people together. But the natural course of things is even when Jesus is pulling things together, even when we have a revival like the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, we're discovering this problem creep up. The problem of difference, power, and negotiating life together. Welcome back to The Disruptors, a podcast from InterVarsity Press. I'm your host, Caitlin Schess. Today, I'm talking to Walter Kim. We talk about the causes of political dysfunction in American evangelicalism, the need for political discipleship in our churches, and where we find resources for a healthier political life in scripture. Walter is wise and pastoral and helps us see some larger theological and cultural dynamics at play in our political life. I have learned so much from him, including in this conversation, and I think you will too. Walter Kim became the president of the National Association of Evangelicals in January 2020. He previously served as a pastor at Boston's historic Park Street Church and at churches in Vancouver, Canada, and Charlottesville, Virginia as well as a campus chaplain at Yale University. He preaches, writes, and engages in collaborative leadership to connect the Bible to the intellectual and cultural issues of the day. He regularly teaches in conferences and classrooms, addresses faith concerns with elected officials and public institutions, and provides theological and cultural commentary to leading news outlets. He serves on the boards of Christianity Today and World Relief and consults with a wide range of organizations. Kim received his PhD from Harvard University in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, his MDiv from Regent College in Vancouver, and his BA from Northwestern University. Thank you so much, Walter, for joining me today. I'm so excited. I have so many things I want to ask you, but let's start out with this entire season. We are talking about preparation for an election season, and that already seems too late because, as you know, as we're recording this in August, it's already basically election season. And as we approach that season, it feels like we will increasingly hear, especially considering how 2016 and 2020 went, we'll hear a lot of talk about evangelicals, um, sometimes well-defined, sometimes sort of confusingly defined. 
And you are the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. So where do you think, as as we all begin to hear all of this information about evangelicals and politics, where do you think some of our particular, and I say our, I consider myself an evangelical as well, where do you think our particular political dysfunction comes from? Thank you, Caitlin. I mean, it's really great to be on this conversation. Thank you for, thank you for the invitation uh, to it. And what a complicated question we're beginning <laughs> with, right? Um I want to hold on just the larger question of what is an evangelical um, yeah. at some point that is more complicated than is often presented. And I think that's actually part of the problem, the inability to see and address the diversity that actually exists within evangelicalism and then the tendency to car- caricaturize based on a a narrow picture of uh, what evangelicalism is. I think this is actually part of the larger social problem that contributes to our time, that we tend to take uh, our worst moments of each other and then normalize that as, oh, the person is this, or the party is this, or this group is this. The inability to see the kind of complexity that often textures our um, conversations and needs to. I would say, you know, where does the political dysfunctions that... um, we experience come from? Well, one, it just comes from being human. And that needs to be said that when you mix power and sin and difference, uh, you have a a cocktail uh, of opportunity uh, for dysfunction. And this is true of any society. In fact, it has been true of all societies throughout history. So part of our present problem is really the ancient problems of sin, navigating difference, difference of power, difference of opportunity, uh, difference of expression. Those are all uh, contributors to our political dysfunction. I I would also say that there are some philosophical and historic problems for us that in America, we've always had this uh, very difficult, complicated relationship between religion and society on the one hand, uh, there is, I think, a very strong case to be made that there are some um, faith components that were driving uh, the founding of this country. And yet the faith traditions that founded this country, on the one hand, uh, could be deemed you know, Judeo-Christian. And, and yet even within that, there is great diversity as to, well, what does that mean politically? Should there be a state religion? Not should different streams of Christianity have equal representation or not? And again, you take those ambiguities that are kind of built in our political system, you combine it with this historic, theological, just human problem that I've been describing, uh, and then you add to our present moment a rapid diversification of our country. And, you know, the this generation, 18 below, first generation that is as uh, pluralistic as it is right now. I mean, this is kind of an unprecedented situation that the particular diversity that exists, that the globe has come to America with all the various experiences that different ethnic groups bring to our country in a political discourse, that I would have to say is, you know, stretching what it means when we say e pluribus unum, you know, what does it mean uh, to accommodate uh, the robustness, all the richness of it, but all the challenges of this burgeoning uh, pluralism? That means we don't have the same kind of narratives we tell about ourselves, about our country. And again, it, it, it's, 
really complicated situation when we think about these multiple factors, but we want to reduce it to, oh, it's just this, or it's just that. When it's a, it's really a mix of all of it. I've worked as a pastor for several decades, family systems, you think about the dynamics of families and like all that's at play writ large in our country. And so for evangelicals, I want to name it in particular, I think there's a profound um, dislodging from being kind of in the center uh, and the normative experience of what we understand to be civic life, religion. And it's always difficult to discover you're no longer in the middle, you're on the margins, and there may be whole new ways that we have to navigate power, influence, our place in society, and all those things are deeply, deeply unsettling. Yeah, I, I so appreciate both um, you naming like the family dynamic element, because I think so much of how people receive the news that will come out about evangelicals is bound up in their sense of like who they belong to, who am I loyal to, who's my family, who do I feel the need to defend, or who do I feel ashamed of and maybe want to distance myself from? And then this element of kind of anxieties about changing social dynamics. Thinking about both of those things together, how would you counsel people who are anticipating both of those things being at play in themselves and their communities? Yeah, I'm always struck by Jesus when he's gave us the command to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. He didn't just give it uh, as an armchair quarterback um, saying, hey, this is, you know, this is really good advice. I suggest that you take it up. But he, he lived this, right? And it cuts in every single way. I think of the Jesus who, on the one hand, could challenge the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and yet um, he also had dinner. He had dinner with them. He discoursed with them. He entered into the home of uh, Simon and had dinner. And yet simultaneously, there was the woman uh, of immodest and immoral uh, background, wa washing his feet with tears and wiping them with her hair and all of it together, that Jesus was in this amazing setting where the two elements of society, those who are in power and those who are out of power, those who are considered righteous and those who are considered immoral, he was there right in the middle of all of it. His love was that expansive. And the ability um, to sup with people, to break bread and then to give it, even to the one who would be his political betrayer, Judas. I mean, they're giving bread to Judas as well as to Peter the one who would deny him. I mean, it's an extraordinary picture of Jesus' capacity uh, to reach out across difference. So one is um, to say, who are the people that you need to reframe as your enemy to as the person that God may be calling you to love, to listen to? You know, if we were to take this counsel from James to be uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, because human anger does not achieve the righteousness of God. I mean, my goodness, if the church applied the way of Jesus and took to heart uh, the command of James, I think we would be in a really good spot. This does not eliminate the ideological differences, mm -hmm. the difficulties of figuring out what does faith require of us in the application of any particular political platform or how you're going to vote. But it does profoundly change you as a person 
and how you engage with others as persons and as communities. Um, you know, I think if we were to be known for that, uh, I, I, that would be radically transformative uh, for not only our character, uh, but our witness as followers of Jesus. Speaking of our our witness, especially in in the public square, um, I hadn't thought about this until recently, but you became the president of the NAE in 2020. <laughs> you became the president right before the pandemic began, right before protests for racial justice that summer, the election that came in 2020. And I've talked to a lot of people who are similarly preparing for 2024 and thinking about that, either pastors in their communities or faith leaders in other forms. And they are often returning back and thinking about 2020 and wondering, like, how can I kind of examine what was going on there? Is there like an autopsy I need to do to see what are the underlying conditions for some of the manifesting problems that maybe weren't even the actual problem? There might have been something deeper. I even know in my own church context, there were particular conflicts that with hindsight, I can see oh, all of this other stuff, like the fear about the pandemic, concerns about the the protests happening, the upcoming election, all of that was motivating some of the presenting issues. That wasn't really what was was going on. It was all this underlying stuff. When you think back to that year, um, in general, are there things that you have learned? Are there things that you've kind of thought about differently as you look back on 2020? But especially are there ways in which you see that, these kind of underlying spiritual formation issues, underlying sources of division or conflict that maybe we needed some time to see? And as we prepare for 2024, it might help us to to have that kind of mindset as we go into what will also be a really difficult election season. My uh, first lesson is that, gosh, I have impeccable timing. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, you know, I, I look at this, and again, I, I have to come back and, and say that the problems that we have in modernity, in our present moment, are the problems, in essence, that we have had perpetually as humans. I mean, I think there's um, the beauty of uh, how the New Testament church was birthed, that it was this outpouring of the Spirit and Pentecost, and then people from all these different groups, ethnic groups and languages, Cappadocians, and people from Rome and Mesopotamia and various areas in Asia Minor. I mean, it's just amazing to see what God wanted to birth. And then after a couple of chapters, in chapter six of Acts, the first problem the church encountered after this amazing birth is an ethnic problem about the use of power and the distribution of food. It was, in a sense, a political problem. And so there's something, I think, very instructive about what the essence of our problems are. Yes, there are some unique things about American history. There are some unique things about American demographics right now. There are some unique things about the pandemic and the social isolation that exists. But the thing that doesn't seem to be unique and the thing that seems to underlie all of it is um, God has a design for us to live both with the beauty of difference, but the difficulty of difference, the sanctifying, humbling aspects of learning to love someone who is not like you. And when it works and when we see it, we celebrate it. It's beautiful. The churches that thrive in cutting across difference, we walk away and say, only Jesus could do something like this, pull these people together. But the natural course of things 
is even when Jesus is pulling things together, even when we have a revival like the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, just a few months later, a few chapters later, we're discovering this problem creep up. The problem of difference, power, and negotiating life together. And I, I think during the pandemic, we have lacked the social cohesion uh, that enabled us to deal with some of those differences and then to persist in the caricaturizing of others. There was an unveiling uh, that the hard work of racial justice um, and, and some work really did get accomplished. I would say some big boulders got removed. I mean, the ending of slavery, the Civil Rights Act, um, you know, Voter Rights Act, uh, desegregation in many of our locations. Those were some big boulders that got removed. But then we discovered in 2020, you remove the big boulders in our country, those are celebrated, but we have like thousands of small pebbles that exists all throughout our country. And it seems like that that might be even harder work to extract the pebbles of brokenness and sin uh, than to be able to focus in on the big things that capture our attention. And so I sense in 2020, um, you know, there is this kind of one theological perpetual problem uh, of difference, the opportunity that that provides to love um, but there's a reason why God keeps on having to command us to love, because it's just not natural to us. We devolve to the misuse of power, to the playing of politics, to tribalizing into the Hebrew-speaking versus the Greek-speaking converts, and we just put the modern garb on it. But there are some unique things, again, um, in the discovery of the thousand pebbles that separate us now, that break us, that we are now picking up and casting at each other. We just see this in the inability. I mean, statistically, you know, sociologists have recognized yeah. this, these growing tribes that have developed and the inability to see each other um, well uh, as, as humans because our, we devolve into, um, again, these caricatures uh, of one another. And Religion, it's no longer the shared common uh, philosophical and moral framework. And when we lack that, we don't have a common moral framework from which to make political arguments. So the things that we can take as foundational principles um, are more elusive now. And when, as a society, we're trying to deal with perpetual problems and then deal with particular problems— and we add to that philosophical problems. I mean, again, no wonder we're in this moment. But having said all these difficult things, I still believe the good news is the good news. And we have mm -hmm. this amazing opportunity, rather than lamenting a past that we seem to have lost, rather than lamenting the fact that we're not in the middle of things, but increasingly as followers of Jesus on the margins of things, I think we have a chance to recognize some of these times and places where the church is most thrived, it is because they have been on the margins and have allowed God's spirit to work something fresh, um, which is my prayer for 2024, that it wouldn't be merely a repeat of tensions or uh, an exacerbation of tensions, um, but it would be a humbling moment where we recognize our profound um, change of place as an opportunity. Yes. And I, I so appreciate how you described these like 
foundational concerns we're always dealing with. Because I do think one of the difficulties, at least in my experience, is we fixate on the particulars, which are important to learn about and to consider, but we forget some of these larger issues. And, we, and we're and we not often in churches that help us think about those larger questions of community and authority and what our relationship is to, to the larger communities that we're in very well. And I, I recently heard you describe the need for churches to have a kind of political or public discipleship in terms of this Old Testament passage, which I loved because I feel like most of the time when people think about political questions in the Bible, in my experience, they go to the New Testament and there's like a handful of kind of direct quotations, do, you know, lead quiet and humble lives or speak to people this way. And they don't often go to the Old Testament. Can you talk a little bit about how you have thought about our need for that kind of public discipleship and and this rooting of it that you described in this passage in Deuteronomy, which might surprise people? <laughs> yeah. Well, let me, because I'm an evangelical, I'm going to begin with Jesus and, and good, just good. simply say, <laughs> You know, when he tried to summarize, when he summarized a lot, what did he say? You know, it's just love God and love your neighbor. Then now the question arises, where does he get this from? So that, <laughs> now we go back to Deuteronomy, and he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, right? To love the Lord your God with uh, all your heart and, and, and soul and strength. Uh, and then um, we're raising the question in Deuteronomy 6. Okay, that's good, God. Like, now, how do I do that? And of course, it means prayer and reading scripture and living in fellowship and loving in your families. Um, but then the passage goes from saying, love the Lord your God, and then commanding families to disciple, impress the, these commandments that I'm about to give you in Deuteronomy, impress them upon your children, talk about them when you rise, when you go to sleep, when you walk, put them on your doorposts. I mean, so this is like a robust 24-7 discipleship program. But what does this discipleship program entail? When you read through the book of Deuteronomy, yes, it's about loving the Lord with your affections, with prayer life, but it's also, wow, I'm supposed to teach about institutions and the setting up of the judicial system and the relative roles of the temple, the prophet, and the king and the constraints of the king's power. And then there are laws about economic uh, organization of life and what you do when an ox is, you know, goring another ox and how much you give in restitution and then what to do with your agricultural practices and laws about foreigners that are living in your midst. I mean, this is extraordinary. When God gave the command to love and then the challenge to disciple, he gave this content that dealt with our social life institutions, economics, labor laws. I mean, it's extraordinary. And then at the end of it, to make his point really clear, in Deuteronomy 31, he says, this book that we've, we've just talked about, the book of Deuteronomy, all the book that tells you how to love the Lord and disciple your children, this book you're supposed to read it at, in total. Just read the whole book once every seven years. Uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles in the year of canceling debts. And not only men, women, but children, so they don't get released to Children's Church. They have to sit through all of this reading of the books of Deuteronomy, and including the foreigners that live among you. And I think about this discipleship. It's the content that we see in Deuteronomy that's so expansive about our life together. But it's also the context that it was a reading of this book during a year in which you were living out the canceling of all debts, 
in community with your families, as well as immigrants who have moved to your country, and you're to celebrate this like you would in a modern day context, like Christmas, as like one of the great festivals. Wow. I mean, if we as the church in America could approximate some sort of discipleship like this, I think we would be so much better equipped to navigate the current challenges that we have. And this is not just a prescription to deal with the problem that we have. This is actually the normative type of discipleship that God's people were given at its formation. Of course, there's some unique things with Israel as as the people of God, but the New Testament church inherits this call for a form of discipleship as expansive and glorious, complicated and rich as what the Old Testament people of God had. And I think it's pretty safe to say we're just not there as the church in America. Yeah, I love that so much. This description that it's like, it's related, this um, love of God these kind of prayer practices, the what we would consider devotional or worship, is all tied up in also these larger communal, institutional, legal questions, which discomforts some of the ways in our churches we often kind of segment out. Like those are questions we we don't even really talk about that in the pews after the service, because that's sort of inappropriate for the context that we're in. Have you seen any of this anywhere happen? <laughs> well, um, I feel like people might be listening and going, that's incredible. And if I asked my pastor if we could do something like that, they would just, they would think that was kind of ridiculous, or they would wonder how we do translate that into a context where the particular prescriptions in Deuteronomy, we're not replicating exactly. We're not doing, we, we don't have some of the same questions, first of all, about an ox scoring another ox, necessarily. Right. Some, at least in America, many of us do not. And we don't have the same system politically that we're living under. So have you seen, maybe even in small ways, churches doing this or communities doing this, finding ways to integrate what we would consider kind of devotional worship activities and also this concern for our communal and our institutional lives? Yeah, Caitlin, that's that's a great question. I, I think this is a chance for us to learn across differences. I think uh, the, the Black church has a long, rich history of this kind of social life. Uh, precipitated because of the tragic circumstances in which it was formed. Um, But in that regard, there's a reason why there's so much in Black theology that resonates deeply with this theme of the Exodus, uh, because birth out of slavery, deliverance, and, and it results in many ways with the kind of broad discipleship that we see in Exodus and Deuteronomy of understanding the kind of social implications of the faith. So I think we have something to learn uh, from one another in this regard. I would also have to say, um, you know, in immigrant communities, I was just, I was talking recently with um, a Hispanic uh, leader, and he mentioned that, um, you know, there are three things that uh, he would seek prayer for and really think through in terms of his leadership with me. And one was the mental health crisis that we seem to all be encountering. I mean, this is just a human thing that we are needing to deal with. And I actually think that plays a bit into our political dysfunctions right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, unhealthy people will be unhealthy, perhaps even more so in their political life. Um because it's not just personal unhealth, now it's corporate unhealth that has been multiplied. Um, but he he mentioned this issue of immigration and immigration reform that within his community, this is not uh, a discussion that 
should be held off of what should we be doing about immigration, immigration reform in our country. This is central um, to his community. So that was an interesting thing to realize that your social location determines what becomes essential to you. And when your social location demands complicated uh, issues that require change in society, then your gospel needs to, your people demand this of you. But I would also say in white evangelical traditions historically, great movements of the Spirit have resulted in this incredible work of the gospel in word and in deed. The great revivals of the Second Great Awakening also involved not only the call to Jesus, you know, and sitting on this uh, conversion seat until you (laughs) experience the Holy Spirit, but it also was transformational in dealing with child labor in dealing with the breakdown of the family, in dealing with uh, the kind of economic disparities that we were seeing uh, throughout our country, uh, post-Civil War and into the early 1900s. Um, And so there's this profound recognition, I think, in all of our traditions, if we look back, that we have seen that there have been moments in all of our traditions where there's been this kind of cohesive gospel that proclaimed Jesus, like Jesus. He came anointed in the power of the Holy Spirit, as we read in Luke 4, proclaiming the good news to the poor, release for the captive, sight for the blind, uh, you know, and setting the prisoner free, and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. I mean, this robust understanding that, yes, of course, it's the proclamation of the good news, but the proclamation of the good news within a context that deals with disability, with poverty, prison, and prison reform. I mean, that's extraordinary. And how could it be any less? Because the God who made us as individuals also made societies and communities. And so I would imagine he would wish to redeem all of it. Yeah, I find that some people are so surprised when I say there's all these other examples in in history, even in the history of your own tradition, very likely, that that might feel unimaginable if you're only looking at like the immediate context that you're in or the immediate past of, of your place. When I think about the recent challenges in the body of Christ, I see example after example of leaders missing a crucial quality, humility. New Testament scholar Dennis Edwards has done us a wonderful service to help us better understand what true humility is in his book, Humility Illuminated. Dr. Edwards doesn't just think that we Christians need to embody humility as one of the markers of the Christian life. He actually thinks this is the identity marker for those who claim to follow Christ. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to find out how you can get a 25% discount on Humility Illuminated at ivypress.com. That relates to what I next wanted to ask you, which is about how we relate to institutions or larger communities, which feels like a really relevant question, especially for younger evangelicals in particular, who might have felt burned or betrayed by institutions that they had served or cared about. And this is really this whole season, you know, past seasons of the disruptors have asked the questions, how do we disrupt the church? And the last two seasons asked, how do we disrupt the culture? And this season, we really want to ask, how do we disrupt ourselves? And I've often been thinking of this question, how do we disrupt ourselves in terms of institutions? Um, How can we be the kind of people who can do faithful work for the long term? How can we contribute to something 
larger than ourselves, um, yes, have criticisms of institutions or criticisms of the communities that we're in, but but not focus that criticism entirely externally, but also ask hard questions about ourselves and ask how we who make up that institution, you know, can be really faithful people in it. How do you think about both that task of how we become the kind of people who can contribute well, who can build good things together? But also, do you have a word for people who might be thinking, I, I don't know about being a part of anything like that. I just, I feel burned and I, I don't know that it's even worth engaging anymore. Yeah. We are creatures by God's design made for community. And so the thought that we can just say, let's ditch all institutions, is not only impractical, but I would say theologically impossible. God did not design us this way. He designed us um, in a fashion that it was not good to be alone. Um, and then that requires us. Once you have you know, two or more people, it requires rules of engagement. It requires negotiating uh, these differences. It requires institution building. We can do it really sinfully, like in Genesis chapter 11, the building of the Tower of Babel, in order to make a name for ourselves, to assert our independence from God, uh, to obliterate those differences and kind of bring a cultural hegemony uh, that Babel seemed to be uh, intending. And again, I think there is in Scripture all these, you know, if we, we think Scripture is not applicable, it's because it's difficult um, and it requires work to see where what is God really saying in this story and then to translate that story to our modern times. It's very, very difficult. But I would say um, we have all, we are institution building creatures. And so the question really is, how do we renew the institutions? How do we change institutions? How do we allow some institutions to die, not because we say institutions have to end, in order to replace them with other more vital institutions? I think we're in such a moment. Um, there's this uh, really, I think, insightful book uh, from Dawn to Decadence, written by this intellectual historian, uh, Jacques Barzun uh, at Columbia. And uh, in his intro, he he describes this situation in which Western civilization, beginning with the Reformation in 1500, seems to be coming to this conclusion. Not an erasure, but there's like something that's happening now. And he describes it as institutions having run their course, that there's this malaise and disease with where we are right now. And the values that would once hold a civilization together are fraying, and the differences are becoming more pronounced uh, than the... Uh, forces of cohesion. But he is not arguing that we eliminate institutions. I, I think this is a moment that we sense deeply, that there is the disillusion, uh, the fragmentation of institutions, and an opportunity to rebuild. So get involved. Practically what it means is to have a holistic understanding of the gospel that includes individual and institutional life. It means partnering and building movements across differences because institutions need to be those mediating factors in society to bring people together in the negotiated life of, uh, of complexity, which means you need to begin with the DNA for institutions of difference, 
You need to accommodate those differences, to learn and to, to develop rules of engagement and, and practices. And then I would say to have the humility to recognize that you need others, that the building across differences is not so that you can convince everyone else that they're wrong uh, and they should join you, but to have the humility to recognize, I, I have something to learn uh, from others. And in this institution building process, I don't have all the gifts that it takes. We, we actually meet, need multiple sorts of gifts. And any startup company with the genius at its beginning soon recognizes, uh, you know, I probably need to hire someone that actually understands how to do management or understands how to raise funds or understand, you know, we begin to realize that in our life, we really need others. But there's something profoundly American that's individualistic, pull your, you know, self up by your own bootstraps and... And even the kind of immigrants that come to America often do so because they're willing to break from their families. And that's extraordinarily difficult to leave your country, your language, your culture, and to come to America. So we're, we're like this country full of entrepreneurs that's used to doing things on our own. And we're built on this philosophical you know, commitment to individualism. And so, of course, institution building is always going to be a complicated thing uh, for Americans and American society, but essential because this is how God designed us. Yeah, I think especially I'm thinking of like people my age and younger who either find it really hard to kind of get out of the posture of criticism. Like I'm always the outsider to the institution. I'm always the one critiquing. I'm, I don't have a lot at stake. And that kind of this idea that we have a prophetic posture is appealing. And so we kind of get stuck in that posture. Or I know people who start out really committed to the flourishing and well-being of, of good institutions, but they're they're weary of ruffling feathers and they're weary of, of coming across as too critical. And so they don't really develop the muscle of, of the courage that's required to maybe logic criticism or ask a pointed question or, or, but it feels like those are the options that we're often left with. What would you say to someone who um, maybe is, is relatively new still at a church or an, an, an institution, an organization, and is trying to figure out how do I, for the long term, do this well? How do I say the hard thing when it's right? How am I listening for when that's the right moment? And how do I know when that isn't the right moment? Or I, I don't want to be the person that's just always critical. How do I build something well in a faithful way. I think, you know, speaking as someone a little bit on the older side of things, um, you know, kind of as an older Gen X type person, um, I, I would say there needs to be, first and foremost, from an older perspective, a humble recognition and even repentance um, that comes with those who are in positions, who generally speaking, older, uh, of leadership, of power, who become accustomed uh, to having things uh, accepted by virtue of their positions. Like there's, there needs to be a repentance there. There's a reason why Jesus said, do not lead like the Gentile nations around you. I came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. So I think generationally, even before I would give counsel to the younger generation. I would give counsel to my generation and the older generations of saying, have we been the rightful recipient of Jesus' rebuke? 
that we have led in a manner that sought to be served, not to serve. And at some level, there's a self-deception that we can um, convince ourselves that oh, we're doing this for the common good or the good of many, but we just need a an honest self-appraisal. So I would begin just before even giving counsel to younger generation of folks, of giving counsel to myself, my generation, and older generation. Having said all that, I would say um, the spiritual formation, there is this kind of commitment to longevity of recognizing there are seasons of growth that we need to be in. And in my 20s, I might need to be in a season of learning, of working out my ideas in community, uh, of recognizing that there is the idealism that comes uh, and the fire that comes from being with people of my generation. But there's a seasoning that comes in getting a mentor. I think there's a reason why Paul had this role with Timothy, encouraging him on the one hand, don't let your youth uh, deter you from taking on leadership. So he was being the cheerleader. But then, of course, you read First and Second Timothy, they're like full of counsel. So <laughs> there's the counsel that's given, but also the courage that's given. I would say you need to find someone who is older than you are, who will serve both as counselor an encourager. And that person may be hard to find, but you need a Paul in your life. You need an older figure who will walk with you. Um, then I would also say in terms of, uh, of growth, to recognize that the, you have, as a younger person, both the ability to see the omissions and the failures of previous generations. Like that is the gift you bring. So I want to encourage you and say, we need you because you see things that we cannot see who are in different generations. Or you see things because of your ethnic background or life experience that another person can't see. So to recognize that you are not speaking against, you are a part speaking with. I think that's a posture shift. When you see yourself as speaking against, like you're on an opposing team speaking against or challenging or debating another team, that's one thing. But when you think of yourself as part of a collaborative effort, that the problem isn't the other person, but the problem is this third entity that you need to solve with the other person, that is a posture shift that is profoundly different. Yeah. Oh, that's so helpful. And part of that, I, I think, is the job of all of us to have a sense in which we make people feel like they're a part of the we that is doing the thing. Like you're not this external to us. You are a part of, of what we're doing. And I'm so glad you brought up the generational element of this because, you know, this season we're talking about kind of spiritual preparation for an election season. And part of that is all the interpersonal conflict that comes up in our actual families, Thanksgiving table conversations, but also in our churches and, and people we love dearly and, and worship with and serve with, but who we have deep disagreements with and navigating that when it really is in our face. How would you counsel Christians from a variety of generations to think well about building relationships across generations? In many of our churches, we don't provide opportunities for those relationships to happen. We tend to segment ourselves up in our programming or even in our services. I mean, this is like the classic, right? The early service, all of the older people go to and the later service, all the young people go to. And so how would you counsel us either interpersonally, how we could think in terms of the relationships that we have that are cross-generational or in terms of our larger communities, how they could be structured so that we could could bridge some of those divides? Well, that's such a good question. And, and in many ways, um, you know, if we could address some of these uh, 
capacities to work across generations. We're learning the skill set. We're developing the sensibilities. We're being formed in our character to apply those things across political difference, across ethnic differences, across regional differences, gender differences. I mean, the, they're, they're just some fundamental skills. I think to humanize the other person and to humanize oneself, we need to have times eating together. I think there's something very instinctual about the shared meal in every culture and every time period. There's a reason why we celebrate big events in our lives with meals. There's a reason why Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. There's a reason why in you know uh, Exodus 24, the Old Testament covenant was ratified with a meal that God had um, with the elders. And um, th- th- there's this extraordinary power in the meal. Because what happens over a meal? You have a common experience. You ask questions. You have conversation. So um, what do I mean by the meal, both physically and metaphorically? I'm going to use an example uh, from my own life. You know, several years back, I had this opportunity to have a meal, a brunch with this older couple who demographically is very different from me. And in the course of this conversation, they asked questions about my upbringing. I asked questions about their upbringing. And all of a sudden, we had a completely different context to look at each other's lives and policy statements. We had a different context uh, to contextualize heartache and emotion and aspirations. When I shared about some of the racism that I experienced as a child, um, you know, to see some tears welling up in their eyes produced within me a deep recognition that I am now being seen and heard. There is a foundation of compassion, mutual affection that's, a develop, that's developing here. What I mean by this metaphor of, of a meal is a peacemaking endeavor where you bring in curiosity about the other person, where you seek to humanize the other person, but also humanize yourself in telling the story and the context of your life. You know, rather than having big debates of what do I think about climate change or what do I think about critical race theory or what about, share the stories of life. Why? Where is this arising? Where are the joys, the hopes, the fears? Where are the opportunities to listen to one another? I think those are some profound uh, gifts that we could offer to others um, and receive ourselves. And then I would say everyone just needs to do the hard work of reading books, studying a bit on what makes different generations tick. When you read stories of what previous generations lived through and went through, you might begin to have an understanding. As a younger person, you might begin to have an understanding. Oh my goodness. Maybe this explains why my parents are the way they are. Maybe this explains why that older generation, the boomer generation, is the way that they are, why the silent generation is so silent. When you're falling in love with someone, say in a dating context, you do all sorts of research on that person. <laughs> you figure out what that person likes, doesn't dislike, what might work on a date or not work on a date. or You just do that work. I would say have that kind of curiosity with the older generation. Like in that regard, date them in the sense that you're going to take the energy and time 
to get to know, understand, ask questions, do research. And all of a sudden you begin to form a picture that's perhaps much richer, much different, certainly more human. And in the end, my hope would be more godly and Christ-like in the ways that we could engage. That's so great. I love that that was your answer because the one time I have experienced the best kind of intergenerational community was when my church decided to do small groups after a weekly meal. It was so beautiful to see just so many intergenerational moments and connections. And like you said, in a context where it's just so much harder for our focus to be on the conflicts that we might be bringing with which are real and important for us to deal with but instead it was this like really vulnerable time of of connection. I want to move a little bit to to reference this um, article that you wrote recently that I really loved for the NAE's magazine about public theology and discipleship. And you ended this article with a call for I love this phrase a catechesis of complexity. And you referenced your son um, graduating from high school and just having to learn so much um, calculus and physics and complicated things. And you said many high school students are given complexity, while churches are far too content with a flannel graph Jesus, seeking simplicity out of concern to make faith accessible. Our faith needs a catechesis of complexity. That seems so relevant to our political lives in particular. Um, so many aspects of this. I feel I, I read that and I thought, gosh, yeah, what rich theology did I have to be 25 before I'd ever heard of? Because that just wasn't how we how we taught things in the churches I grew up in. But I think especially for our political lives, having this this catechesis of complexity has so much to do with our disagreements that can be so simplistic, watered down, complicated issues, make it all about my identity or kind of my sense of community and just combat with those things in mind instead of policy questions that are like really complicated and we might have good intentions and then the policy actually really doesn't help the people we thought it would help and we have to go back to the drawing board. When you think about what that practically looks like, catechizing people into complexity, what 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 comes to mind? How might we do that in our church context so that we can approach not just really difficult theological questions, but I think especially over the next year, difficult political questions with that sense of complexity in mind? You know, there's something within uh, church in general, um, but I'll talk about evangelicalism. Part of what makes evangelicalism such a powerful renewal movement is its ability to make things simple. When uh, there could be the altar call that simplifies conversion. That's a powerful thing. And I'm not seeking to diminish the importance or, or critique the importance of, practically speaking, simplifying the message of the good news in order to help people understand who Jesus I is. I hope you like flannel graph Jesuses. Yes, I, really do. I do. You know, they're very important. And I've, as a pastor, I have given some flannel graph mm -hmm. Jesus lessons. <laughs> But there is an ethos that when we consistently give three-point sermons with a neat conclusion that we reinforce that problems can be solved in 25 minutes with three steps, right? There's something bigger going on with how we're forming our people. And so there, there are a few things I would recommend. I would recommend the expansion of what becomes legitimate topics of discipleship, right? And that gets to back to my our conversation about Deuteronomy. Like, what are the legitimate topics we need to expand? So one, by complicate, catechesis of uh, complexity would be a catechesis that expands the scope of what the good news of Jesus Christ touches upon and what we're able to discuss. That's going to immediately require a catechesis of complex emotions, 
So you're going to need to develop skills, disciple skills, on how to do conflict resolution. That's spiritual formation. Mm. Conflict resolution teaching is spiritual formation. And we are sending people out by a simplified good news or by not um, talking about certain subjects. We're sending out people into the world who are unable to resolve conflicts because we have not modeled in church, we have not given them a laboratory in which they can learn how to resolve conflicts. And that language of a laboratory is helpful because experiments, they succeed and they fail, right? And, and, and the important thing is just do the experiment. So have a change in mentality that it's not an all or nothing thing. It's a laboratory where we're learning how to love, where we're learning how to expand the scope of what biblical faith entails. As we learn to expand the scope, as we learn to deal with the complexity of the emotions that come with it, the perspectives that come with it, the kind of counseling that would be required. Like, not only we need to have that conversation, but we might need the whole next class to be about debriefing that conversation. <laughs> yeah. What were the emotions? How do we yeah. think about this? How do we learn to ask better questions? Wow, that would be powerful spiritual formation. And then as we do that, we explore scripture with a posture of humility across traditions when we begin to realize, huh. Pentecostals read it this way, Presbyterians read it this way, the black church reads it this way, an immigrant coming from Southeast Asia reads the passage this way. I never would have read it this way. And yet we all believe in the inspiration of Scripture, so that question's not in, in, in play. It, it, these are serious followers of Jesus who actually pick up a different part of the story. That also complexifies things, and it builds within us not a a giving up and suspicion that like, oh, I can't ever get to the truth of scripture, but it expands the richness of what God tells us in the truthfulness in all the domains of life uh, of, of what scripture would teach us. And again, when I think about it as discipleship, as the laboratory of love and truth and grace, it shifts it from this prospect of fear of all or nothing to this mutual endeavor of learning. We'll have successes, we'll have failures, but the point is we're in it together. Um, and if again, if the church is, as followers of Jesus, if we can capture that dynamic of spiritual formation, um, then I think it would be a, a tremendous, mm -hmm. tremendous gift. We just you know, let's get it all done in the next year. And so be prepared for it. Uh, if we can just make a little bit of progress, yeah. that would yeah. be fantastic. But once again, Caitlin, I would think the tensions that we have right now, they are crises. The, you know, evangelicalism is going through an identity crisis, an inflection point, whatever you want to describe it as. That is true. But it is an opportunity. It is an opportunity to learn Jesus in some powerful ways to apply the good news in more comprehensive and expansive ways and to build communities and friendships that will surprise us in their freshness and their newness and what they reveal to us about God, that were we in our own little kind of clan, we would never see this part of God that a brother or sister from a different persuasion would reveal to us. And that it's a beautiful thing for what God would wish in the rebirth of the church. Um, and would he bring, you know, another Acts 2 
rebirth and then make us prepared to deal with Acts chapter six when right. <laughs> all the tensions arise. Yes. Thank you, Walter. We're we're about out of time, but I just want to ask if someone is hearing what you just said and going, yeah, how do I fix this all <laughs> in a year? As people prepare for this election season, what is one thing that they can do, a practice maybe, or a mindset shift or some way to emotionally or spiritually prepare for what will be difficult because we're not going to fix it all in the next year before we before we really get into it. I'll give you two things. One is, you know, we at the NAE have resources. We have this uh, both written and uh, video curriculum uh, for the health of the nation that I think would be useful. Um, but uh, I would also build a friendship mm. across a difference and say, let's do this laboratory of love, discipleship, and grace with each other. If you can find one friend that could represent a very different life experience, political persuasion, perspective on life, and you share this common love for Jesus, I think that could be absolutely transformational. Thank you so much, Walter. That is encouraging. And I, I really hope people take that seriously as it's not, we don't have to change the world over the next few months, but we can build a friendship that could really form us into the kind of people who can do faithful work. So thank you so much. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you for doing the work that you're doing it is a deep encouragement to me. The Disruptors is a production of InterVarsity Press. For more information on any IVP titles mentioned on this episode, visit ivpress.com and use code IVPOD25. That's IVPOD25 for 25% off. Sound engineering by Honest Podcasts. Our producers are Andrew Bronson, Myla Kim, Helen Lee, and Travis Albritton. Our production assistant is Isis Tolson. And I'm your host, Caitlin Schess. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the IVP YouTube channel, and leave a rating and review to support the podcast. God.